Hello, I'm Jane Goodall, and I just want to tell you that I've been on Guy's podcast twice now and had a great time, and I really hope that you'll listen to it. Of course, especially the one when I'm on, but the other is great too. Hi, I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is the Remarkable People Podcast. I'm on a mission to make you remarkable. And today, helping me is Jim Weber. Jim is the CEO of Brooks Running Company. He joined as CEO in 2001 and was the struggling brand's fourth CEO in two years. He is responsible for the company's remarkable turnaround. I cannot claim to be a runner, but I do know marketing. And if your brand catches the attention of Warren Buffett, you are doing something right. Brooks was a subsidiary of a subsidiary of Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. It caught the attention of Buffett and he elevated Brooks to the status of an independent Berkshire Hathaway subsidiary in 2011. In 2015, Runner's World magazine named Jim one of the nine most influential innovators in the running industry. He also earned a spot for more than 10 consecutive years on Footwear News Power 100 list. Who should listen to this episode? Anyone interested in creating a challenger brand, as in challenging the likes of Nike. Spoiler alert, it's all about owning a segment of the market. And, by the way, cancer patients and bedwetters will also find this episode interesting. Weber received his bachelor's degree from the University of Minnesota's Carlson School of Management and his MBA with high distinction from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Jim is the author of a new book, That's why he came on the podcast. The book is called Running With Purpose, How Brooks Outpaced the Goliath Competitors to Lead the Pack. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. And now, here's the remarkable Jim Weber. In the category of TMI, I too was a bedwetter. So (laughs) when I read that... When I read that, I said, oh, I can relate to this guy. I, I, I remember... I was going to a YMCA camp out, and my mother was telling me, okay, son, if you wet the bed, just don't tell anybody. Stuff everything in a plastic bag and just pretend like nothing happened. So when I read that It was almost every day, right, guy growing up. And I I was a stressed out kid anyway. (laughs) And so that was just another element that I knew I was different on. And uh, wow, I think it went away in third or fourth grade, and I felt like a new person. Anyway, so bedwetters can win. (laughs) Exactly. You can prevail. It's not the end of the world. Second piece of commonality is I love hockey. I started playing hockey at 44 because my kids started playing. And my wife told me, I don't want you to be one of these Silicon Valley types on the sideline with your Blackberry, just looking up every once in a while. I want you involved with their lives. So you take up hockey too. And I'll tell you, first of all, I didn't even know you had to sharpen your skates. So the first time I stepped on the ice with sharpened skates, it was like, oh my God, this is the world's greatest sport. Is so fun to play, right? It has everything, Guy. And I obviously grew up skating. I just love to skate the fluidity of it. Anyway, it's an incredible sport to play. And it's fun to watch, but it's even more fun to play. And I have three boys, and and one of my sons got really into it as well. So it was fun to share that with him. One of my boys kept playing it, and he played semi-pro hockey for the Sydney Bears in Sydney, Australia. And 
about, oh, it must have been 10 years ago. Uh, I played in the Lake Nakonis Pond Hockey Tournament. And, oh, my God, what's wrong with you people in Minnesota? My God. <laughs> what a scene that is, right? Like, oh, just wow. rinks as far as you can see. Yeah. Everybody's out there in their hats and caps and sticks. Oh, good 20 for below. you. 20 below. I am yes. still recovering. I'm still recovering from that experience. I never got used, truthfully, to below zero weather. It's always <laughs> just brutally cold. And I, I don't miss it, I have to say. So my podcast is called Remarkable People, and you know how your purpose is inspire to run? My purpose is inspire people to be remarkable. So that's what I do. I love the purpose. It's wonderful. You may be just the world's greatest expert on this is what does it take to turn a company around? The first three businesses I ran, Guy, were turnarounds, and I, I thought to a degree, I was well prepared for it because I love strategy. I was at Pillsbury. I was a commercial investment banker for a while. And seeing businesses succeed or struggle, solving the puzzle for their strategy, how they competed in their category and their industry, I just loved it. It was this amazing puzzle to solve. And of course, business education, MBA, you're just tuned to be an analyst and a strategist and an investment oriented student of what made a business tick. So when I finally got the keys to a wheel to a company, I was so excited. And they were all turnarounds. They were all repositionings. You know, in in so many ways, if you're coming in from the outside and you get hired as a CEO, oftentimes it's because things aren't really right. They're really not working (laughs) that well. And so I came in to trial by fire. And, and I, I literally, these were bu- the first business I ran literally could have gone away. There was almost a padlock at the door. It hadn't made money. It wasn't that pos- well positioned. It was broken in many, many ways. And a lot of turnarounds are. It's often not one simple thing. If it was that simple, they would have done it. So I think the key for me was a real hard-nosed assessment of the realities of what was there. And then I also wanted to find the opportunity, the white space, right? Get the whiteboard out. Where could we play? Where could we fit? And so I've come to be a sort of a challenger brand person because I've come into these underdeveloped or troubled brands and businesses that didn't have a, a, a successful game plan. They didn't have a roadmap. And, you know, I I don't think there's a simple answer, but I love to solve the puzzle of how to succeed, how to compete, where could we go, where was the white space, what customer groups, how do you do that? And then really look at the business from every aspect. And sometimes there was too many resources or costs in certain areas. Other times there wasn't a capability in a key area that wasn't good enough. I love products. I love brands. I, I feel so fortunate because obviously my fourth business that I ran in my career was Brooks and I have the best job in the world. This is how I feel. I feel so fortunate. We're still having fun. I'm having fun at 20 years in because we're building a brand. We've got a fun team to do it. But the turnaround, I would say it's also a repositioning opportunity. Every one of them are, right? In most cases, in the ones that I've experienced, they had to be repositioned and refocused because maybe they're focused on too many things. Maybe they just weren't executing against the biggest opportunity and focus that they had. I think it's such a combination of those things, but they're almost always, in my experience, in the consumer side, repositionings. I don't think I'm stretching this too far from the truth, but I work for Apple 
And Apple, in my humble opinion, had a superior computer, but it was getting killed by IBM and the clones. And yet, after much tribulation, it grabbed a profitable slice and the rest is history. So I think that, in a sense, Apple and IBM is like you and Nike. And you, you have wow. grabbed an area. Guy, huh? Thank you for that analogy, Guy. I became early in my life a fan of great brands that were great companies and how they got there. And Apple, boy, you know, just wrote the script on how to do that product-driven, consumer-driven. Anyway, but that analogy is, is powerful because at the time in the 90s, you were there and from everything I've read, it was a troubled business, but they did have a niche. They had a niche in the computer area with Mac and, and all of the areas around that. And obviously, it got very focused back to some core products. That's exactly what we did at Brooks. We weren't going to play good, better, best. We weren't going to play broad across the field of athletic and court shoes, basketball, obviously running and cross-training and all that. We were going to do one thing, and we we're going to try to do it better than anybody else. In that sense, we've had similar success in our space of defining customer trust and uh, affinity in that space. In your book, you discuss using VisiCalc and 123 and Symphony, which implies that you are a PC user. So have you seen the light yet? Oh, I've seen the light. I, I have so many <laughs> Apple products. Okay. I am so deep into the Apple ecosystem and I love it. I just love okay. Apple products. But I, you mentioned VisiCalc. I got the first PC that was at the largest bank in, in Minneapolis at the time, Norwest, which is now Wells Fargo. The, the two PCs came into the bank with VisiCalc on it, and I got one of them. And, <laughs> oh, did I have fun. You could spread the numbers across a column or sheet, change one, and re, you, know, you know the drill. It changed our world. What a tool for a business yeah. analyst. Yeah. Fabulous. Yeah, right. early adopter. So now, Mr. Challenger Brand, what's the gist of how you compete with a larger brand? Or maybe specifically, yeah. how do you compete with a Nike? I, I think it's a great question. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is there are a lot more Challenger brands than there <laughs> are the leading dominant yeah. you know, franchise platform in your industry. And almost every industry has those players, right? So... I love the challenge of how do you find space to create affinity with a customer that if you take care of it, you can nurture it. And I don't believe you can own the customer, but you can hold on and create loyalty and you're going to be their brand. You're going to create affinity and connection. And I've been in sports for a long time. We both played a little bit of hockey, but I started running in my 20s when I quit playing competitive hockey. I loved running and running is a unique sport because it transcends the sport. It's one of maybe the original sports of all time in track and field, cross country, the Olympic level, road racing, trail, ultra, et cetera. But for millions of people, it's more than just a sport. It's an investment in yourself. It's health, wellness, and fitness. So we looked at the athletic footwear and apparel category, which Brooks had competed in for 90 years at every price point. And good, better, best, you know, the truth of the matter is an athletic guy, most of the product never goes for a run. It's family footwear, it's casual footwear, it's lifestyle footwear. We're in the footwear and apparel business and, and it's personal expression for you and who you are. But at the core, on the sports side, you want it to work at mile five, at mile two, at mile 25. And so we decided that we were going to build equipment. We we're going to build gear. 
And if we could do that well, the frequent runner, the runner that bought two to three pairs a year because they were running 20, 30 miles or more a week, that runner knew 20 miles into the shoe whether they'd ever buy it again. And so we just decided that running was big enough that we could survive. We knew it was about survival at that point. We were just trying to carve out enough enough customers and get some loyalty going with good products at good margins that the, they valued so that we could survive. But I think that's where it began. And, and to this day, as we talk about our strengths and what makes us tick versus all the great brands in our industry with Nike. Nike, you know, is one of the greatest brands ever built. I don't mind saying that in public because everybody that's ever played a sport gets it. Epic athletic achievement and and breaking the tape and standing on the podium, the gold, right? And, and so we all get that. But there's a whole layer from the podium on down to your first run <laughs> out your back door when you're trying to get back into shape. And we're celebrating everybody's run. We're celebrating Josh Kerr, who just won the bronze medal in Tokyo at the Olympics in the 1500 meter. We're celebrating him and we're celebrating everybody that's running their first 5k. So that positioning 20 years ago, guy, that was very different especially from the market leader, Nike. And so we just felt that if we could celebrate everybody's run with performance gear, with the right people, we can build the best training shoes in the world for runners because that's all we do. And we're engineering materials at the molecular level that are perfect for just what a running shoe needs, not a basketball shoe, not a court shoe. But I think all of that led to the first big choice we made was the customer focus. And that's why I think about so many brands, we've gone to retailers and say, you're going to have to go down channel to grow because you're investors and everybody's going to want you to be bigger and, and grow. And the retailers want more. If you're being successful here, give us these price points and these price points. And you could do more. Why don't you guys do basketball? Why don't you do all these other shoes? We get those questions all the time, but we're still not number one and running guy. We're now, we believe, the number two brand in the U.S. Nike's still number one with runners, but we're on their heels. And <laughs> that we've achieved over 20 years with intensity of customer focus. So I, I think the key to us is we picked a big category. So we've had 20 years of fun focusing on this customer, and we still have you know, a long way to go. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, so I think, I think that choice, that customer choice has been the key to us. And I'm, I'm just, I'm rambling a bit guy, but we saw <laughs> in the okay. pandemic because in March, 2020, when all the stores closed, all the demand signals went away and inventory is big in apparel and footwear, right? We all had millions of dollars of products coming, you know, on, on, in, into the marketplace and none of the stores were open. So no one had consumer signals, but you know what? Eight weeks into the pandemic, we could see people running. We could see shoe demand on digital. We turned our supply chain all back on. Because of that singular focus on runners, I think we move quicker. I think the biggest choice you make as a brand, as a business, is who you're focused on in terms of your customer. That's the one we've never looked back on. Now, on a real tactical basis, I think there are basically two philosophies when it comes to your competition. So one is to pay attention to them, but never say the N-word, right? So in your internal meetings, you don't say, well, Nike did this, and this is how we yeah. got to be. You know, The other is 
to lay it all out there. This is what they own. This is what we own. So do you mention Nike? Do you juxtapose against Nike? Do you discuss what you're not or what you are? <laughs> I guess is so. I love that question because I'm a true believer that success as not only a business, a brand, but a person you're going you're gonna to have more fun and be more successful if you spend all your time on what you're for and, and being on the offense, so to speak. I, I just believe in that, especially as a niche brand, as a challenger brand. So here's what's happened in our industry. I absolutely am convinced that you need to understand your competitors because your customer has those products as a choice. And I think it's so important to understand what your customer is looking at, what they're buying, what they're reacting to, because if they're buying somebody else, they're not buying you. So you better understand why that is. And then the key, the absolute key is not to emulate them. The, the customer already has those choices. We're trying to be Brooks. We're not trying to be anybody else. And so I firmly believe uh, that you need to understand your competitors very, very, very well and how they present themselves and what they stand for and, and, and how they want to present to the customer and then how the customer receives them. But for us, here's the key is you don't beat your competition you win the customer. And I think so many people in our industry have made the mistake of, of getting fixated on bettering um, themselves versus their competitors. The customer is truly in charge. It's such a cliche guy, but the customer is so in charge and, and it's about winning the customers. So at our best, I think day in, day out, what we've achieved in our culture is we have a focus on the runner. And, and we talk about the runner the moment we wake up all the way through every day. That's our focus. And we talk about the competitors in the context of we don't have 100% market share. So they're buying these other products. Why are they buying them? What are they excited about? What are the trends? Is there some innovation we need to pay attention to? But we have an innovation in our product plan that goes out five years, in some cases more on materials. So we're not watching competitors in the here and now. I've always believed that in brands and in consumer-driven product categories in, in the consumer space is that if you're following your competitor, you'll never get credit for anything from the customer because you're just another you're mm -hmm. another option. You know, I used to, when I first started uh, running brands, I used to get all of the material, marketing materials from my competitors and obviously review all their products. And I would map where I thought they sat in the marketplace on these various grids in front of the customer because I was looking for that white space and what we could own and what we could stand. And that's why I'm so proud of Brooks because we're this unique brand that is incredibly committed to performance product, but we have this run happy, celebrate your run energy that's a high five after your run. No matter if it's your first 5K or your 15th marathon, that's the energy our brand has. And it's pretty unique in our space, but we think it's more than on trend. It's a center of the sport of running. What if you did a mapping and honestly, you discovered there is no white space, then do you develop a strategy to kick somebody out? You know, it's interesting, Guy. I think that I used to joke often over the last two decades with Brooks is if running ever goes south and ceases to exist, we are in deep trouble. So the way I would describe it, yeah, I think I'm old enough to remember rollerblading. And coming from hockey, when the rollerblade thing hit, I completely got it. It was a, an opportunity to skate all year long on the sidewalks and streets. But I, we all know now in the late 80s and early 90s, rollerblading boomed and then it just busted. 
And so I watched those businesses just go from being, you know, on the top of the heap and the shiny thing that everyone was looking at with huge valuations. We see this all the time, right? And then literally all of the businesses were in trouble three years later and many of them ceased to exist. So that's a lesson. I think what I feel so excited about is we're anchored in the lifestyle of run. Now what happens is innovation and preferences change and evolve. Some things are timeless. We found out that cushioning is timeless, but there was a whole barefoot phenomenon that came through our category and it created a lot of great discussion. There was not a lot of science around it. It, I think, put all of us literally back on our heels and we went back into the labs. But out of that came a lot of innovation. Some of it stuck. And three years later, the customer was still appreciating and rebuying. Some of it didn't, like the pure barefoot shoes for most people were painful. And the (laughs) truth is cushioning is timeless, guy. So I think if you'd put all your focus on a barefoot inspired minimalist shoe in 2010 to ride that wave, you'd be out of business three years later. So there are cycles that come through. And I think that's why the, the focus on the customer in these latent needs and just unspoken needs and really understanding the, their experience, some of it that's hard for them to articulate and what they're looking for, and what they appreciate helps you to innovate three years down the road because you'll never get it from a you know focus group. They're never going to design your product for you. If you're that ingrained in, in, in why and how they run and the reasons for, you, you can stay with them. But it's, it's, it, it, it isn't a given. You know, okay. it isn't a given. I would say that your quote unquote moat is your focus on performance shoes. Would you say that now with the success you have, that the serious runner is part of the moat, that they're part of your defense against brands that are not focused on performance running? Yeah, here's how I would describe it is I I talk about in my book that I I literally had always dreamed about being in a large platform business with network effects and monthly subscription revenue and tides, but I haven't been. So when I got to Brooks, I immediately saw that the hardest customer to get was the frequent runner that had always run. If they have their way, they're always going to run. And they're putting 20 plus miles in a week. And their worst day is when they get injured and they can't run. <laughs> and th- those people were buying 2.6 pairs of shoes a year. So from day one, we challenge ourselves is that's the runner. We have to win them. And if we can win them, we can win the casual runner, the occasional runner, the walker. We're going to halo the, our entire brand's credibility and authenticity off of winning that frequent runner and their trust and loyalty. So that trust and loyalty and affinity becomes a strength. It's part of your moat. We have two of the best-selling trainers in the world now, a stability shoe called the Adrenaline GTS and, and a neutral shoe called the Ghost. And they're both selling over 3 million pairs. And they have huge loyal bases of runners that They'll try different shoes, but they'll come back to these shoes as well, and they'll buy them again and again and again. So we can lose that if we don't continue to innovate and keep the fit, feel, and ride of these shoes where the runner trusts them, they'll go somewhere else. But that loyalty in that core running market is absolutely, I would, I would call it 
proof that we have somewhat of a moat. <laughs> it, they aren't the <laughs> moat because I don't take them for granted. I think you have to earn them every shoe. And if you ask a female runner, would they rather run barefoot or without a bra? They they choose the bra. So for sports bra, run bra is a piece of equipment for women. And so that's where we begin from head to toe. Jackets, the same thing. We know we have to earn that frequent runner. And, it, and that's credibility. They're the ultimate key influencer in running. So if, if that credibility can halo for our brand elsewhere. So in a way, you're right. Performance product is a huge part of our moat, but it's that trust and loyalty that we build around it with runners that really is the proof of it. How are you threading direct-to-consumer e-commerce, your own retail stores, I think you still have them, and your resellers? Aren't they cannibalistic? This is a great topic that, boy, have we lived it with the entry of Amazon and this power and cloud in every category. And we've thought really deeply about it. And first and foremost, we're selling premium products and gear. And the right shoe for me isn't necessarily the right shoe for you. So it's really about the runner finding the right shoe for them. That's why we exist, because people are different. And we've done a lot of research on the mechanics of human motion. And everyone has natural habitual joint motion the way your body wants to run. And so keeping you in that motion pattern is critical and shoes matter. So long story short, it's about the right shoes. So if that's the case, retail presentation and digital storytelling and helping people find the right shoe is critical for us. And we're at premium prices. Our shoes really start around $100 and our best sellers are in the $130, $140 and we go all the way up to $160 to $200. But of the major brands, we have the highest average price by far because we don't do mid and low price shoes. So when you put all that together, we're a premium brand. And so we want to present it in a premium way. So between a very disciplined retail strategy, we've had the same retail strategy for literally almost 20 years, sporting goods and specialty running shops and quality digital sellers from Zappos. We have to approach Amazon through marketplace because Amazon isn't brand driven. They're, they're consumer driven and they're price driven. So, so to be presented as a brand, we go into Amazon through marketplace partners of our best retailers. And we have about 20 of them set up. So what all that means is we have one face to the consumer with all of our products, consistent storytelling, and we're selling at full price. We're a full price brand. We're not a discount brand. And to be able to innovate and create the experiences and, and service levels, that's critical. But what I love, Guy, is that I think the closed ecosystem brands and controlling that whole relationship at direct-to-consumer, it's powerful. And there's so many fabulous brands, even in our space, that have closed ecosystems and are direct-to-consumers. But we believe that running is so big, it's so diverse, and there's so many different types of customers that you need to be where the runner is. There's 50 million people that run for fitness in the United States, 150 million people globally. And there's another 40 or 50 million walkers. It's a huge category. So we don't think you can be number one with runners by being uh, a closed ecosystem consumer direct only brand. We think you have to be multi-channel. So here's what we've done. 
we're really good at both. And I'm, I'm, I'm so proud of that. We're a really good wholesale partner for retailers. Maybe the best. We partner with the best retailers and run from sporting goods on down through specialty run. That's everyone from Fleet Feed and Super Jock and Jill here in Seattle to Dick's Sporting Goods nationally and the Big Footprint, Zappos. And everybody that can sell premium performance running product, we're partnered with. And in most cases, we're their number one brand now. Plus, we have to have a direct conversation with the runner. So we've created a digital direct capability that's very, I think, as sophisticated as anybody. And guess what? Because we only talk to runners. We've got scale in our reach now and, and frequency in the conversations and that we're having in the digital outreach that we're having. So we've got both bookends here. And I, I think as you know, we're watching what's going on in streaming and controlling your pipes and content versus distribution and all that. We're a content company. There's no question about it, guy. We're a content company proudly for runners. And I think as long as we can bring the best content, the best products and solutions with credibility, authenticity, and trust, and we can have discipline in all of our distribution pipes and channels and in our digital communications, we think we're going to win with more runners than we could ever do with a closed ecosystem. So I love those business models. They're powerful, but we're trying to execute against a big market and multi-channel I believe is the only way to win there. If Big Five called you up and asked to be a reseller, would you turn it down? Yeah, because we don't have products that are really in their sweet spot. They're a good retailer. We used to do business with them when I first started at Brooks, but they're really doing that mid to low price of the whole athletic category. They've got all the brands, but it's really from about $20, $30 up to $60. We don't make a $60 shoe. We don't mm-hmm. have products there anymore. And I think that's the focus that we've made. When we had that full line of product, we were unprofitable in those products. So we exited that and we used to call them barbecue shoes or lawnmower shoes because that's what you did in them. <laughs> they're, they're, most people that are that are running and looking for a running shoe are, are not buying those products. They're investing more and spending more for a performance product because the materials are completely different. $130 shoe is not the same as an $80 shoe as a, as a $30 shoe. The materials and the design and engineering in those materials is completely different. Is Big Five that different from REI, Foot Locker, and Dick's where you are selling? Yeah, because I, I think all of the latter have had great success at selling $100, $130, $160 shoes, and the mm-hmm. customer expects to find those products there. I think there's a huge family footwear category. When I first studied the athletic footwear and apparel category when I dove into Brooks, the biggest segments, Guy, are between um, $50 and $80. Huge, huge part of the business. And when you look at the large brands, the average price of the next seven brands in running to us, the, of all the athletic brands, is $60, $70. Our average price is over $100. We have a $40 to $50 difference in average price. And that's just the product we build and also where it's sold. But I think that category is just huge. But it's family footwear, casual footwear, lifestyle footwear, sometimes kids' footwear, right? And, and casual athletic use. But we don't believe runners shop there. And so if they did, we would want to be. We're we're really selling where runners are shopping for performance products.
You make a really big deal about Tuck and your MBA, but that was a while ago. So do you still think an MBA is valuable for, in particular, entrepreneurs? You know, Guy, you're, you're right. I do talk a bit about it in my book because it was such a transformational experience for me. I grew up in a family. My dad was a small business person and he struggled. He was bitter about it. He wasn't very successful. And I just wanted to learn from successful business people and figure out how to do this and be successful in business. I wrote a paper in seventh grade next to a hockey player. I wanted to be president of a company. So I kind (laughs) of had a path and I got short and slow in hockey. And so here I am. But Tuck, I, I knew and I wrote in that paper in seventh grade, I needed to get an MBA if I wanted to be a leader and run a company. And so I was tracking to that. And so I went to Tuck having spent a couple of years as a commercial banker and I wanted to turn myself into a business person that could ultimately be a CEO. And so Tuck was so transformational to me. I think it is still a fantastic opportunity for someone that wants to lead in business in any way, shape or form And you're coming from a path from an education or from an early work experience that you want to pivot. You've been a banker, but you don't want to be a banker. You've been maybe in a marketing path or an operations path, whatever, but you want to pivot to something more. That's what it was for me. Fantastic ROI for me. But I I didn't, you know, everybody's different. At age 26, I wouldn't have probably been successful at starting a business. And I think my first president position of running a small business was at age 30. I did okay, but I did a lot better five years later, five years later. I've been learning ever since. But I think that the foundation that Tuck gave me was the analytical skills to assess a business, to understand and all the elements of it, and to have a windshield. It created a windshield for me from an investor's and a CEO perspective on the entire business. And I didn't have any experience in running a business when I got the job. So the Tuck was was just foundational experience for me to creating that windshield where what to look at and what to assess. And when you got the wheel to drive the car, at least you knew where everything was. You didn't know how to do it, (laughs) but you knew where everything was. So I'm a big fan of it, but I needed it. And it was transformational for me. The opportunities I had coming out too were, were dramatically better. My first position coming out into Pillsbury, and I looked at private equity and a lot of other things, but I wanted to run a company and it worked out so well for me at Pillsbury. I would not have gotten that position in their corporate development group had I not come out of a, an MBA program that was on their list. So huge, huge transformation for me. I probably framed that question wrong because I said, is an MBA necessary for an entrepreneur? But that is different for being a leader or a CEO. I mean, it's completely different. So that's my framing error. Well, I I would say this, you know, for an entrepreneur, look, there's so many ways to be successful in business. There just is, right? There's not one answer. If you're trying to create a sustained independent company, I think an MBA is fantastic. If you're trying to create an asset or an entity that has value to an acquire and you're going to sell in three, five, 10 years, you don't have to build out the whole picture. I'm running an independent company now and I love it. And I think that enterprise leadership mindset that I think is required to do that 
for all of your stakeholders and constituents to satisfy investors, customers, employees, to build culture. The MBA was was just so foundational for me. And there's other ways to get that perspective and training. I learned so much from everyone I've worked with, including Jerry Levin at Pillsbury. I mean, just all these leaders that, you know, and sometimes you learn from leaders that maybe you don't want to emulate and, and just lessons <laughs> learned. But I've worked with so many fantastic people and I've drawn from all of them. But I think the Tuck experience gave me the playbook of business. Okay. It just gave me a great playbook for business and one of the things that the analogies I use in a turnaround, especially, it's like moving a wall of bricks forward, a thousand bricks, and they all have to go forward. If some fall too far behind, you, you're going to struggle and possibly fail. There's lots of ways to fail is the truth of it. So if you're trying to build a long-term entity and enterprise built to last, so to speak, again, I, I think that MBA framework and perspective and the toolkit they give you, it's been super valuable for me. So speaking of uh, lessons learned and MBAs, what are the most valuable lessons you learned from the Oracle of Omaha? Oh, boy, Warren Buffett. The first lesson I learned was 20 years before I met him. And I was the assistant of the CFO in a summer internship at a media company. It had to be Coles Media. They owned the Minneapolis Star Tribune, a Buffalo newspaper, a bunch of newspapers and and maybe in some radio stations. Anyway, long story short, they had closed the Buffalo, uh, New York newspaper because they were in a fight to the death with the other newspaper in town that was owned by Warren Buffett. And what I learned from him then is, man, he's single. It, it, winter, those were winner-take-all businesses, right? Network effects and one newspaper towns because the stronger you got, the more valuable your paper was for ads and everything else. So anyway, they won and, and Kohl's had exited the market with, with significant losses. But Warren had signaled that he was never, ever, ever going to quit. He was in it to win it. Despite losses, he was investing in, in, in the newsroom and the quality of the paper, never, ever, ever going to throw in the towel. And he ended up not only prevailing, he got the whole town and became extremely profitable. So, wow, I learned about network effects, increasing returns to scale in a business. And I found that in this frequent runner. And if you can earn their trust, we've got a little flywheel in our business. But I, I never forgot that guy. I learned that from Warren. And then just signaling, if you're going to plant your flag, you know, tell everybody what you're doing and they may or may not believe you. They may or may wonder if you're going to be successful at it. But if you stay on that path, you're going to get credit for it and be authentic and, and, and you're going to build more trust. Then later, I think with Warren in the early years when Brooks became a part of Berkshire Hathaway, I'll never forget it. I thought, okay, currencies are moving fast, destroying our margins. We're, we're struggling with profitability in Europe because the dollar got so much stronger. And Warren's brilliant at global economics. He's got the whole economy in his head. I'm going to call him and he's going to help me you know, work through this currency situation. I want to know how he thinks about it. So I laid it all out and he said, Jim, I don't have a clue what's going to happen with currency. So guess what? I don't spend any time thinking about it. Here's what I suggest. Focus on your customer and, and do whatever you can to win with your customer. But the truth is you're going to make less money. The business is going to be less profitable. There's nothing you can do about it. So don't worry about it. Focus on your customer. And it's like, wow. Uh -huh. Okay. That was, I mean, that, that was huge for us because there was so much financial engineering going on with forward contracts and hedging and what could we do and all of that. And the truth of the matter was those were short-term bets to smooth out earnings, but, but they weren't long-term solutions. 
And so that was actually foundational for us because every crisis that we've come into that was uncontrollable outside of Brooks affecting us, we just navigated through it without losing focus on ultimately building great gear and winning runners over. And boy, they've come fast and furious. We had the pandemic. We had tariffs coming into China and and disrupting our whole supply chain. Now we have COVID and all the supply chain craziness. But I think that focus from Warren and it's continued at Berkshire with Greg Abel, I can't describe how powerful that is because we're absolutely managing for the long term against a customer that we're super focused on and, and wow. Uh, a huge advantage for us, huge advantage for us. So one author to another, how did you get him to write your forward? Because that seems to me, that's like an act of God. (laughs) Oh, guy, actually, I didn't expect it. So the story in the book is, I think Brooks is one of the best unknown challenger brand turnaround stories. It's a David and Goliath story in our industry. We've got some cases in some of the business schools that unwrap the strategy and stuff. And so I love to to talk about it. We're living it. It's just so fun. And it's a great story. So I want more people to know about it. But I started writing a manuscript on my own probably six, seven years ago, just to unpack all the hard wiring I had. I'm still going through my midlife crisis, but it was really (laughs) helpful to me to unpack why I'm wired the way I am. And so I started writing, but I put it away, hadn't touched it in the last four or five years. And I met with Warren two years ago, and I was talking to him about trust in leaders and organizations and institutions and the degradation of trust and all this other stuff. And of course, we got caught up on Brooks and our category and the economy and everything else. And we finished the conversation. He said, Jim, Brooks is a great story. You should write a book. And that was February of 2020. And that's what I needed. So I I went at it. And I started to write, write, write. And I shared with him an update on it. And I said, Warren, I got to ask if I'm going to go get a publisher on this. If I did, would you be open to writing a forward on it? And he said, absolutely. Wow. So it wasn't a difficult ask. I didn't know what to expect, but he's been so supportive. So is Greg Abel. Berkshire has been just so in Brooks' corner. And when I, I love to tell this story, but he said, this is a great story. And, you know, you write this book, I'm going to share it with everybody at Berkshire. So he's been so supportive from the beginning. Well, if 270,000 employees of Berkshire buy your book, <laughs> you, you will have no problem. <laughs> oh, guy, it's one of these things that I think I've been involved in a lot of organizations and a lot of conferences and speakers, and I have such a high bar. It's got to have takeaway value for the reader, right? Sure. I hope it does. You know, it there's, does. There's, some, there's a great running story in here. I, I've learned a lot about leadership, and if somebody can take away some things about leadership from that's great. But the Brooks story as a competitive strategy story, as a purpose-driven branding story, as a culture-driven business story is fun to tell. I think we're executing at a really high level and I'm super proud of that. So here's the key. If there's not takeaway value, it'll be a good doorstop to keep the door open on a windy day or something. (laughs) Hopefully it has value for people. I I hope you'll put a flyer or a coupon in the Brooks boxes because this is definitely a book worth reading. Well, thank um, you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a rookie author. Some fabulous people helped me tune it and shape it. I wrote all of it, but I've got a lot of help tuning and shaping and editing. And I, I just have respect for people that are really good at what they do. And I don't consider myself a great writer, but 
I think the story and the elements in there have a lot of value. So I'm hopeful that people um, can not only um, get into it, but get through it. I, I would say that books are like shoes and it's all about the product. So wait, my takeaway is that the Warren Buffett story, the man is as good as the myth. Oh my gosh, guy. I have to tell you, this is a person and I describe him with the backdrop of the, the concept that life isn't fair. He's brilliant. He's a brilliant investor. He's a brilliant business person. He's got a brain for numbers and constructs that is incredible. I've presented to him, you're in, you're out. And he corrected me on my numbers. So yeah, we were about 40%. No, you were 34.2%. He, <laughs> he, he's got a brain that is just wired to understand business and connect dots. But He's an incredible people person. He's just a student of humans and human behavior and relationships and connections. He does his homework. And his empathy for people has just been stunning to me. And so, yeah, I'm humbled by just the way he carries himself as a human being. And it's been inspiring to me. But absolutely, he is all that he seems to be. That's how he operates. That first meeting I had he invited me out. The door closed. There was not one cell phone message or phone call or interruption. I had his undivided attention for three hours and he was like a kid in a candy store. He was so <laughs> curious. He wanted to know everything about Brooks, everything about our business. What makes it tick? Why didn't we get squashed by the big brands? And he just has a curiosity and an energy around learning that's absolutely inspiring. And I think all the smartest people I've ever been around are, are lifelong learners and curious. And he's just been inspiring because, boy, at, he's now in his 90s and he's probably still one of the most curious people I've ever met. <laughs> it's pretty cool. And he did get rid of the New Balance, right? Oh, yes, he did. <laughs> we were trying to get him in Brooks' shoes and he, and he sent a note back and said he had met Jim Davis at New Balance, great brand, great company. And we have a lot of respect for New Balance. But he said, I met Jim Davis maybe 10 years ago and he sent me some shoes and it's just the kind of person I am. I still have them. So we got him into a pair of Brooks and I think he's been happy in them. Because okay, it would not be a good thing if he showed up at a shareholders meeting in New Balance. Your cancer experience. Yeah. Yeah. I Did it make you a better person? What did you learn? Mm. From that experience? I learned a lot and I don't mind talking about it. It's been a huge part of my life for the last four years. So long story short, I, I started to feel sick and, and I didn't know what it was, but I had a 10K race. It was the worst race I'd ever run. And I just wasn't feeling good. And so doctors test, test, test. I had esophageal cancer, a tumor in my esophagus. And so that's chemo, that's radiation, and that's a major gnarly surgery and weeks of recovery, et cetera, et cetera. They basically take out your esophagus and I now have a new Frankenstein <laughs> digestive system. And it also got worse for me because in that surgery, there's lots of risks. My surgeon called the high rent district around your heart and lungs and your chest and everything else. And so in that first surgery, you have phrenic nerves that drive your diaphragms that drive your lungs. And so in the very first surgery, the phrenic nerve to my left diaphragm was severed. And over the next eight months, I'd find out that my left diaphragm was paralyzed and atrophied and I had one lung working. 
So that was as traumatic for me as the cancer. But I think here's what I've learned, Guy. I think you, you know, when times get tough for businesses, you anchor in on your purpose and your values and what you really believe and and what your focus really is all about in your business. We've found that to be the case at Brooks and we've oriented around our purpose and our values and our strategy and runners. In me, that's exactly what happened. Cancer comes and, and I did what I always do when a friend or a family member or somebody has cancer, I go to the web and I do the research. <laughs> and I would start to learn more about it. And the first thing that comes across on cancer is the survival rates are often terrible in the statistics. And mine was 20% in five years. So I found out that day that I have a one in five chance of being here in five years. And I had three kids and now four grandkids. And my wife and I have been best friends for over 40 years. We've been married for over 35. And and so it, your life flashes. But I quickly figured out that I didn't want to be the cancer guy. I wanted to be a CEO. <laughs> I wanted to be a lapsed hockey player. I wanted to be a runner. I wanted to be a, a husband and a father and a grandparent. I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to be part of this team at Brooks. That's what I valued. And so I had a lot to lose, but I also didn't want to change and pivot and completely be retired or be a golfer. And I was doing exactly what I wanted to be doing. Exactly. And so learning that I had to take what you get and I was going to have less. I lost running. I can't sustain a running heart rate. I have a very strange, so I'm Frankenstein from the neck down and I have a strange digestive system and I have lots of issues that I have to deal with, but I take what I get and I want to make the most of it every day. And I think that's what I've learned is that you have a lot to lose in life and you can focus on that and you can focus on what you don't have. But I'd seen that early in my life, in my upbringing, my dad seemed to be unhappy and I just don't want to be unhappy. I don't even for one day. I really don't. So I'm always taking what I have and that is a reality and, and I have to start there and make the most of that. So I think that's what I've learned. So many of my friends said, wow, you have a lot to lose. It just must be this gray cloud of, of grief and loss and why me? And I, I just didn't want to go there. So I think everybody's different, right? But that's what I learned is that even if I have six months left, I want to live those six months doing what I love to do, not thinking about what I can't do or what I lost. And so, you know, that that's what I've taken away from it. And that's where I am today. And my scans are clean. So I think the cancer is gone. My life is different from where I started because of my Frankenstein digestive and <laughs> cardiovascular system. So I never was all that fast, but now I'm really not that fast. <laughs> but I'm in the gym. I can ride a bike. I can walk, run. I can do some intervals and I'm doing everything I can. So, yeah, you learn a lot about yourself as you go yeah. through this. And I share that in the book. I think that'll be helpful maybe to some people. And I'm always glad to talk about it, but I haven't let cancer define me. That was a personal choice. I didn't want to be the cancer guy, but I, I do have an experience that I'm pleased to share with people because of how I processed it and everyone's different, but I don't recommend it. Don't join the cancer club guy. It's no fun. It's not a fun club. Okay. And I have empathy for everybody that's in it. And I'm part of it. I'm part of that club now. So I'm willing to help and engage and give my experience to anyone that is embarking on it. And I have many times, but it's just not a fun club to be a part of. Are you still friends with those 
friends who said that you have a lot to lose? Oh, yeah. No, yeah, because they looked at me. And when I got the diagnosis, I could see the look in my wife's face. And it was just grief and sadness. And same with my boys. And right then and there, I'm going to fight this thing. I'm going to give everything I have at it because I want to be with them and I want to be with the grandkids. But I think a lot of people were wondering, wow, the emotional body slam of all that you have to lose. And I respect that. I could go there. I could go there very easily. I could go there because I've lost running. I loved my six mile runs. (laughs) It's my mental therapy, meditation time. It's so many things for me. I don't have that anymore. I just don't think that For me, I I just can't live there. I can't be in that space. For me, it's negative and it it doesn't take you anywhere. So yeah, no, I respect it, but I've just decided I can't live in that space. I would be remiss if I did not ask this question of the CEO of Brooks, which is how to buy running shoes. How to buy running shoes? Yeah. How should people buy running shoes? I love this question, guys. So (laughs) here's what I would suggest. I think if you have experience running and you know something about your feet, a lot of people, as you go through the years, have a relationship with their feet. And they may have had pain or discomfort or what have you. So I think you need to pay attention to it. And if you're putting in a lot of mileage, it's a repetitive motion, mostly on asphalt. Some people run on trails, but most people run on the streets, including a treadmill. So in a repetitive motion that you do for 20 minutes, 40 minutes, two hours, mechanics matter. They just do because carpal tunnel, typing, et cetera, it's a repetitive motion. And so that's where that natural habitual joint motion of your body is so critical. So the shoe absolutely matters. And everybody's different. We're all unique. So we have a shoe selector that's biomechanically based on our own website, the Brooks Shoe Selector, that'll take you through our line. And it's going to be about you. It's going to be about your foot shape and your mechanics and your balance and the strength of your ligaments and joints. It's questions that all is around your own running condition. And so that's a start, but the best running shops are really good at helping you find shoes that are going to meet your needs and and fit your foot well. The fit profiles are so different. If everybody had the same needs in a shoe from a fit point of view to biomechanics, there might only be one brand in this space and it would be a big (laughs) platform brand, but people are unique. And so the best local running shoes shops are so good at helping you find the right shoe. And what they'll do is they'll bring out three different brands and you can try each of the three on and then you pick. But each of the three products and brands will fit your biomechanical profile and fit profiles. So that's what I would suggest. You can do trial and error, but that's no fun sending stuff back and forth and that. But I I think go to the best-selling running shoes to start with because for most people, there's just great shoes that have become trusted and it's not an accident. The customer is smart. Obviously, we love our products, but that's what I would do. I would do a little bit of research at your local running shoe shop and online with our fitting tool. So I'm not a runner. So I'm going to go to a shop and I'm going to buy a pair of Brooks in honor of this podcast because I want to back up my talk. (laughs) I love it, Guy. Thank you. And we are the kind of brand that every time we look down 
and we see what's on people's feet. When we see Brooks, it makes us happy. So thank you. We built our brand a pair of feet at a time. And literally, that's how we count it. So I appreciate that. There you have it. You have got to love a good success story about a challenger brand. If you think about it, there are more challenger brands than dominant brands, right? Challenger branding, it appeals to every marketing, sales, and evangelism bone in my body. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Jim's book, Running With Purpose. I'm Guy Kawasaki. This is Remarkable People. And now for the acknowledgments. Peg Fitzpatrick, Queen of Social Media. Jeff C. and Shannon Hernandez, the sound design gods of Texas. Alexis Nishimura, who's not only an entrepreneur, but she is a prom star. Luis Magana, rocking it not only in the water, but also at UC Santa Cruz. And last, but certainly not least, is Madison Nismer who has dropped in on me more than anyone in all of Santa Cruz. Until next time, mahalo and aloha. This is Remarkable People.